0: You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. All right, all right. Well, hello, Passion City Church. How are you? Good greetings to everybody that is here, everybody over at 515, everybody that is joining us online. Anyway, hey, good to be with you guys today. I do bring greetings from Dallas, Texas. I bring greetings from Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, it is just, it is a joy to be with you. I was reading in the text, Hebrews 10, 25, and listen to what it says. You know it. It says, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's encourage one another today, amen for that, as we're able to be here together. Yeah, it's what it means to be in the house together. Okay, hey, let me uh, be clear. Beyond my role as president at Dallas Seminary, I'm also a professor. So they were joking, saying that we're gonna go to seminary today, and that's what we're gonna do a little bit of. But uh, um, one of the things that I know this time of year, it is that time of year, now what I mean is that It's at the end of the semester, which means it's exam time, right? Do I have any people in the room? You know who you are. Anybody taking exams right now? Yeah, bless your heart. How many of you, like when you hear the word exam, you like wanna get in a fetal position and like sucking on your thumb? Anybody wanna do that? It's like, praise the Lord that you're done with those exam moments? Okay, well, I just wanna be crystal clear. Because I'm a professor, I kinda like exam time. I'm just letting you know, I kinda like it because I don't have to do it anymore. I just give exams, does that make sense? And it sounds horrible, I know, for me to even say that. But here's what I like. I actually like exam time, listen, because of the creative answers that students give. You know, like when you're desperate for that one and you kinda give an answer because you know you have no idea what it says, but you're gonna go for something to get some of the points? Okay, so, just shooting straight with you, I collect crazy exam answers. Okay. And so I want to be clear here. I do not collect exam answers from my students at DTS. Okay. But I love collecting exam answers from students in particular kids that take tests. So here's what I mean. So think of a kid taking uh, a science test and it's science and they ask this question. You're gonna see these things because these are the real pictures of the exam. So give a brief explanation of the meaning of the term hard water. That's a particular issue. This kid had it all down and said it's ice. I don't think that's exactly what they were looking for, but it's okay. Okay, here's another all-time favorite one that I like because it's, they were talking about plant cells. Does that make sense? You know, like, remember photosynthesis and stuff like that, green leaves and the sun and what it does and so on. Okay, so here's the question, ready? Draw a plant cell and identify its most important parts. Okay, here it is. This is what the kid said. <laughs> now, that's a plant cell. Now, notice it said identify the most important parts. I mean, they went all in, look. Look right here. No windows. (laughs) And they had another important part, iron bars. I mean, so it's just like, hey, you got to give them points for creativity. How about this one? Uh, another science question, because apparently they're trying to talk about the importance of problems and solutions and things like that in science. So here it was, you see what it is. The problem is, is that you fell on the playground and you scratched your knee. I promise you, this kid grew up in the Yarbrough household because I heard this a million times. Get up and deal with it. <laughs> anybody, anybody in the room, you know, you had one of those dads, your moms that suck it up and deal with it? Okay, there you go. Okay, how about like a history question? Now, this one was a little weird. I mean, it was like, you know, draw a picture of what you're going to look like in 100 years. They're trying to project backwards, forwards, all that kind of stuff. So this kid named Warren, he had it all figured out. <laughs> there you go. Okay, my all-time favorites though, they're math questions. These are so good. Math questions. And teachers, and I've I probably got teachers in the room, teachers always want you to explain it which is never good, so look at this one. The difference between 180 and 158 is what? Come on, you can do it, 22. And then they want you to explain your answer from problem four, math. <laughs> I mean, that is what it is, right? Didn't use anything else to do it? Okay, math. Okay, here you go, here's another one. Uh, this is, uh, look at this one. There are 300 students in your 10. Mary and Mark want to find out you know, year 10's favorite color. Mary asks 30 people, Mark asks 150. Mark says, my conclusions are more likely to be reliable than Mary's. And then the question comes, why does Mark think that he is right? It's supposed to be a math, but because Mark is a man. Okay, sorry. There's guys, just admit it. There's probably some truth there. It hurts a little bit, but anyway, okay. So here was another one. We just got a couple more of these. So old Frankie, Frankie was my favorite because apparently they're wanting to talk about chores and earning money. It's another math question. And so they go out there and say, I earn money. And Frankie says, I don't, cause I'm a freeloader. <laughs> right? Okay, last one, last one, here we go. Okay, so another math question. Bob has 36 candy bars, he eats 29. It's a math problem, right? What does he have now? And here's what, diabetes. <laughs> Guarantee you, Bob has diabetes if you eat that many candy bars, right? Okay. Those are hilarious, and if you don't think they're funny, you need to go see somebody, okay? so. <laughs> But here's what I really wonder. As we move into Christmas, we slide further into the Advent season, right? Here we are. That's all fun and games for that kind of exam. But the question that I wonder is, what would happen if we took a Christmas exam? Mm. Now, some of you are probably thinking, now Mark, I have to take a Christmas exam every year. It's like, what present to buy my spouse, you know? Okay, I'm not talking about that kind of exam. I'm not even talking about one of those tests that you know, identify the titles of the Christmas carols or what occurred in what particular nativity account in the gospel. I'm not talking about that kind of exam either. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of exam that asks us to remember why we have this Christian holiday to begin with. I'm talking about the kind of exam that asks us to reflect deeply Upon a moment that rocked the world. The birth of an obscure child in a know-nothing village to a peasant girl and a very confused and perplexed carpenter. I'm talking about the kind of exam that asks us to ponder why one single event split history in two from B.C. before Christ to Anno Domini the year of our Lord. Friends, this Christmas season at Passion City Church, we are invited, we're encouraged, we're challenged to step into the reality of the incarnation. The incarnation, that big fancy Dan Latin word that simply means when God himself in the person of Jesus Christ took on flesh, and stepped into time. We in this house are asked to wade into the reality of God's master plan and see a new and a fresh, and maybe for some, even for the very first time, maybe for the first time, to see how Jesus split history and opened the doorway to heaven He kicked down the barrier to eternity and paved a path for eternal life. That's what we're doing in this particular study. Even today, our primary text for this hour is Galatians chapter four. And in Galatians four, instead of giving us an exam, the Apostle Paul actually gives us the answers to the important test related to Christmas. He provides two fundamental answers or anchor points, if you will, to remember about the greatest story ever told where Jesus split history in two and changed the trajectory of humanity once and for all. So I want us to read Galatians four, four and five together as a family. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, let's read it together. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Let's read it one more time. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. What a text that we get to wrestle with today. Let's pray. Our Father, open your word to us, we beg you. May it be real, may it be vibrant, may it penetrate our calloused hearts today. May it cut through the distractions of our culture. Please, God, redefine our thinking today so that we can see you for who you are and for what you have done for us, especially as we reflect again on the greatest moment in human history, the day that heaven came to earth in order to bring the people of earth to heaven. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there it is. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Like many other books in the New Testament, the book of Galatians that we have in our Bibles is a corrective to bad theology. It's a corrective to bad theology. It's a corrective, friends, against the theology of the world. Make no mistake about it. You do understand that there is a theology of the world that pivots itself against the theology of what God has revealed in his world, in his word. Friends, I want to be clear. This one's free for us today. Don't let the world teach you theology. You hear me say that? Don't let the world teach you theology. The world's theology is looking to validate human desire and exalt self, you know that. It's a theology of nearsightedness, it's a theology that focuses on the short term and when it comes to the life after this one, it's looking for eternality under human effort, under human accomplishment and under self-validation. And in Galatians, our text for today, Paul wants to correct all of that. In this book, Paul articulates very clearly that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ plus nothing else. As Louis stated last week when we began this series and we stepped into the incarnation, We revel in the fact that God moved into the neighborhood and he split time and divinity stepped in and covered himself with dust. Where God himself became flesh. Today, here's what I want us to do. I want us to see that God has brought about salvation At his time, under his terms. At his time, under his terms. So the question is, what does it look like this year for you and for me, and for all of us in this house, to step into Christmas and believe something very strategic, very life-altering, if you will, about who God is and what he has done? Or let me say it this way, God is longing for us to believe two critical things about salvation history as it relates to his time and his terms. Point number one, we must believe that the Father is the keeper of the clock and he has moved heaven And earth for the arrival of his son. Let me say that again. The Father is the keeper of the clock, and he has moved heaven and earth for the arrival of his son. Think about our text again. Look at how it begins, the very opening phrase that we have. It says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. I realize that right now we've got a bunch of different English versions that we're reading, and rightfully so. Look at how that opening phrase occurs in your word. Uh, Translators have actually wrestled with it. Some of the versions that I glanced at, so the new American standard says, when the fullness of time had come, The Net Bible says it this way, when the appropriate time had come, the CEV phrases it this way, when the right time came, God sent his son. Friends, in that opening phrase, there's something that we're supposed to wrestle with. That this is an event in human history that disrupted everything, that split time in two. And God had been about this moment from the beginning. Okay, let me me phrase it differently for us. We're supposed to approach this moment in time realizing that this was not just a coincidence. It's not just a moment in time that was circumstantial or it just so happened. The phrase is there for us to see that this is the plan of the ages that God providentially moved for this moment to say, this is what I'm doing by giving my son. Friends, I'm going to say it just like this at the very onset. The cross that started in the cradle, it was never plan B. God is on the move. I love the way that John Calvin phrases it. He says this, the fullness of time was the time which had been ordained by the providence of God and was seasonable and fit. Therefore, the right time for the Son of God to be revealed to the world was for God alone to judge and determine. See, phrase this, this is a pregnant phrase. It means that God had been at work to come to this moment to start a new era. Jesus set and established a new moment of time. In fact, the entire Old testament is leading us to this moment in time for the arrival of the son of god where history was split in two you don't believe me may i give us a little old testament review shake your head yes because i'm going to do it anyway so it's irrelevant what you say but i want to show us this Uh, friends you know the story of the bible and how it all starts i mean right when you go all the way back At the beginning in the book of Genesis, it all started at creation. And chapter one and two is absolutely amazing. It's beautiful. Everything is right. There's one instruction given in the garden. And by the time we get to chapter three, right, we're just two chapters in, it all falls apart. And there is a great grand problem. And sin enters the world through this problem that we have in Genesis chapter three. And and in Genesis three, moving forward all the way through chapter 11, it's about this problem where sin has disrupted everything. And we're thinking, oh my, it was all great. Now it all falls apart. But by the time we turn the page and get to Genesis chapter 12, do you know what we see? We see the fact that God has revealed himself as a covenant God that God is now on the move to fix the problem because he is a problem fixer. And he calls this man by the name of Abram. We get to know him by the name of Abraham. And he promises that through Abraham will come a mighty people that will reside in a land and through that people in the land of the Jewish people, they're gonna bless the world. And we see that blessing carried from one generation to the next generation to the next generation because God makes covenants. And when God makes covenants, He will always keep them. Aren't you thankful, friends, that God is a covenant keeper? Amen for that? Okay, so here we are in this story, and it moves from there, all the promises, and and the people of God, the line of Abraham, they get to Egypt, and they are established as a mighty nation, and God gives them a law. It's called the Mosaic Law. And the amazing thing about this Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other rules and regulations that go with it, It tells us about who God is. He's holy and he's righteous and he's pure. But the problem is, is that everybody else because of sin, they can't keep the law. So God puts in motion this thing called a sacrificial system, right? The book of Leviticus. And in this sacrificial system, it shows us that God is willing to accept something else other than the individual for that individual's sin. So we follow the nation as they eventually go into the land, the land of promise. And after a time where kings come into existence over the nation of Israel, there was one king by the name of David, and you know his story. God shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he makes this incredible promise saying that through David's line is going to come the ultimate Messiah, the Messiah that will rule righteously, that will take care of his people that will lead and guide and direct them. And we're following these promises through the line of David. And we see that even David is concerned about how the people worship and covenant worship is an important part. And we begin to get these promises in the Psalms about this coming Messiah. God makes promises. And it moves out of that and it goes into a time where we we think, God, how are you gonna keep these promises because what happens to the nation? They actually reject God, don't they? And God shows up and he, he begins to make these proclamations of consequences that will come, and God sends all of the prophets, and that's where they show up, and they're saying, turn around, and God says, you're gonna suffer the consequences of your sin. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The nation splits in two, they end up going off into captivity, but God brings them back into the land because of, his promise of love. He's made these promises all along. And he promises that one day is going to come a new covenant that's actually going to ratify the heart. It's not sacrificial in that regard, but it's going to purify the heart. And we're wondering, God, if you're a promise maker, how in the world are you going to keep all this moving forward? Because the Old Testament wraps up and it ends in about 430 And there's about a 400 year gap between the Old Testament and the New. And how many of you have ever heard the phrase that that's called the silent years? Anybody heard that? Yeah, okay, well I'm gonna tell you that's a bunch of hooey, okay? Because God is never silent. That's my theological term for the day, hooey, okay? God is on the move. And even in this intertestamental period of all these promises that have been made for the Messiah, Isaiah said that he was going to be a suffering servant born of a virgin. Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Malachi said that there would be a forerunner that announces the day of the coming of the Messiah. Israel went off into captivity, but then some people came back. And it ends about 430 BC. But in this intertestamental time, when the Old Testament ends, We see some things that are taking place. A modest temple is rebuilt, but there's no presence of the Lord. There's hypocrisy in worship, corrupt priests, social injustices. There's no Davidic king on the throne. Judah and the Jews are still under foreign rule. And we're thinking, God, how are you going to be good at your word? How are you going to keep this promise that you've given? Throughout that time period, there's shifts in the empires from Assyria to the Babylonians to the Persians when the Old Testament ends. But in 334, friends, listen to this. A guy by the name of Alexander the Great came to power. Anybody ever heard of him? It was the great Hellenization period. And what if I told you that God was at work even in the midst of that He's establishing a common language. He's putting in a road system. He's putting in the ability for letters to be written to be communicated from one part of a province to another. God was at work even in the details of history preparing for the arrival of his son. Friends, God is on the move. Rome eventually conquers Jerusalem in 63 BC. A guy by the name of Herod the Great comes to power. Some of the Israelites had returned to Judah, but many of them, listen to this, because of their time of captivity, remember when they went off? They were scattered all throughout the ancient Near East. I wanna show you something that I hope blows your mind. Yeah, they had the temple and Sabbath and priesthood and away from Israel was the establishment of synagogues and rabbis and Torah. Okay, I'm gonna go all nerd on you here, let me show you a map, okay, here we go. Okay, this map that you see right here is a map of what Rome's jurisdiction looked like when the New Testament opens up. And you're like, okay, should we be excited? <laughs> it's a map. Can you see the red line that goes all the way around? Everything in the middle of that red line is Rome's jurisdiction. The Romans were cocky. They actually called the Mediterranean Sea, you wanna know what they called it? They called it the Roman Lake. How about that? <laughs> They're like, this is all ours, we're in control. Here's what we know. Go to the next slide, take a look at this one, this is amazing. It's the same picture, it's just zooming out a little bit. Do you see all those little dots? See those dots that are related to a city? Here's what we know. Through archeology, span we know that at every dot that you see on that map, there was a Jewish synagogue. Remember when Israel went off into captivity, back in the Old Testament story? They went off, and they couldn't get back to Israel, so they established these things It's called synagogues, where they studied God's word. And here's what happened. By the time we open up the New Testament, by the time we turn the pages into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is an unrecognized phenomena of a new type of people that are referenced, and they're called God-fearers. You know who god fears are? god fears are individuals that had once believed in the Greco-Roman system. You remember that? Did you take classes on that in high school like I did? Zeus, Apollos, all that kind of stuff. They make really cool movies about it, but it's just a silly religion. Okay, it's dying out. You wanna know why that religion's dying out? Because it's, it's stupid. I don't have anyone else to say it. I mean it's stupid I mean they're they're that that world they're worse than we are right I mean the the Greco-Roman gods are are about rape and lust and incest and I mean all these things and people are going that's just stupid they start listening to these Jews that had been sent out even because of their sin and they start believing friends I can phrase it this way. Whenever Jewish people had community, they touched people around them with their belief in the one true God, the creator of the world, and the coming redeemer of Israel. Some people would come to faith in God and become practicing Jews. Many felt that they could not, even though they did fear God. Listen, it was because of God's work, even through Israel's judgment, that a believing Gentile population Existed and was primed for the coming of the Jewish Messiah. God had used Israel's judgment to spread his people to all places. God had moved kings and kingdoms for the coming of his son. The world was primed for the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? The father is the keeper of the clock. And when we just slide into Christmas nonchalantly and forget that this was the plan of the ages from the book of Genesis all the way up to the New Testament, we realize that God was on the move. He moved heaven and earth for the arrival of his son and he split time in doing so. Okay, well, Paul does something else. Number two, if you're a note taker, here it is. We must believe that Jesus is both, listen to this, the promised one and the ultimate promise keeper. He moved from the cradle to the cross and he opened up eternity, friends. Look look at our text again. Look at what it says. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman God sent his son. The text is telling us two things here. God sent his son, which means this one is 100% deity. But the text also says he is born of a, say it with me, what? A woman. He's 100% humanity, yet without sin. Friends, the orthodoxy of the faith is that Jesus is full deity and perfect humanity. The mystery of the incarnation is that God became flesh. Man, I read this years ago. One of my favorite authors, especially around Christmas time, is a guy by the name of Max Lucado. He wrote this and penned it masterfully, just wrestling with the incarnation, what it is that we believe and what it is that we celebrate. Listen to this. He talked about this moment God split time in two. He says this, it all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, that one appeared no different than any other. If you could somehow pick it up off the timeline and examine it, it would look exactly like the ones that have passed while you heard these words. It came and it went. It was preceded and succeeded by others just like it. It was one of those countless moments that have marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. Did you know that God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen? He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluid of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a very sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured. They were calloused and they were dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him and oh, had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons. (laughs) Did you know Jesus may have had pimples? He may have been tone deaf, perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure. He was while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years... He would feel everything that you and I have ever felt. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. He got tired and his headache. You know, to think of Jesus in such a light, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something that we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean up the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant. Packaged and predictable but don't do it for heaven's sake don't let him be as human as he intended to be let him into the mire and the muck of our world for only if we let him in friends can he pull us out See, friends our text reminds us listen to this that salvation is not a process it's a person and friends what that text goes on to say that he came under the providential hand of God God had moved time to get to this moment to bring about salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And the text says, listen to this, that he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. He came and did what you and I could not do. We couldn't keep the law. We're not good enough because we've been tainted with sin, but he as the perfect one, full deity, perfect humanity, You know what he did? He fulfilled the law. You remember that phrase? Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to do what? Say it, to fulfill it, to do it. And when he did that as the perfect, righteous, holy one, listen to this, the cradle from the beginning was always overshadowed by the shadow of the cross. It was on its way because he came to die for you and me. Now, he went to the cross. And at that moment, even as we talked about last week, everything changed. Oh, yeah. God showed up on the planet and it split time. But there was a moment on the cross, and Matthew records it for us in Matthew chapter 27, and it is stunning. As he was on the cross, I want you to listen to Matthew's account. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing there heard this. They said, well, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran out and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Listen to this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple, it split in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Friends, when we talked about the fact that Jesus split time, Listen to this, his birth, his death split the curtain into, that may not be a big deal to you and me, but trust me, that temple where only the priest one time again could walk into what's called the Holy of Holies, at the sacrifice of our Savior, the curtain split from top to bottom. God had intervened. And he said, the doors have now been opened for everyone to have access directly to God. Amen Amen for that. Friends, Christmas time invites us to remember that the father is the keeper of the clock. That's his time. But his terms for salvation are rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has kicked open the barriers for you and for me to have complete access. And the text goes on to say this, that if we have identified with Jesus, who is the ultimate promise keeper, We have the rights to be called, listen to this, sons and daughters of God. If you have done that, would you rejoice with me on that one right there? Because that, friends, is worthy of our celebration. But it's quite possible that someone else here or online Maybe you have not come to that level of trust. You see, friends, at the end of this, you know where we're at? We're called to trust in the fact that the Father is the ultimate keeper of the clock and that the Son is the promised one and the promised keeper. And we are asked at this season of the year to trust anew and afresh. And trust is hard. Would you agree with me, anybody? especially when the world's preaching another theology. Years ago, I was speaking at a uh, conference in Colorado. I love going to Colorado because I'm from Texas and it's the only time that we get to see snow. (laughs) And I was there and we were having a great week and they had installed at this camp a brand new state certified, tubing hill. You didn't know there was a state certification for that. It's in Colorado. Trust me. Everything's for legal purposes. (laughs) And they had put in this tubing hill and it was phenomenal. And you don't know this about me, but there's part of me that I'm an adrenaline junkie. And uh, I have learned through the years that when you ski and when you tube, that if you wait till the sun drops behind the mountains, there's a 15 minute window called the golden zone. And you can go 18 more miles per hour on your tube. It is phenomenal. And so I had my three year old at the time, this was years ago. Little bitty guy, he's now six foot three. Little bitty guy and I'm like, come on Joe, we're gonna go up the hill together and we're gonna do a whole bunch of things that you and I can never tell mom about. And we're gonna go and I'm telling him all these stories as we're going up. It's kind of funny, we went over to the lift and as we got on, there was no attendant there. I thought that was a little strange, but it was still moving. So we hopped on and I'm just telling him, hey Joe, this is gonna be the greatest ride of your life. We're gonna get bumps and we're gonna get air and it's gonna be absolutely fabulous. And he's like, "Willie, daddy, willy? And I'm like, yes, it's gonna be great. As we're getting up to the top of the lift, there was this little girl, about 13 years of age, that was in front of us. And uh, I hadn't paid attention until she got off. And here's what happened. When she got off that lift, somehow her leg got jammed in the pulley as it went around. And it popped her. She catapulted down in the snow. The system bucked and it stopped. I knew we had a tragedy. I'm looking up and there's no attendant there either. So here's what I did. I grabbed Joseph. We hopped off the lift and we started running up to the girl and I plopped him down in the snow and and I rolled her over, Uh, please forgive me for all my medical friends in the room. She started yelling about her leg and she said, take off my boot. I took it off. All the blood from the top of her head went down there. That thing ballooned in about 12 seconds. She passed out, then she came to, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs. My son, Joseph, the three-year-old is standing there, and and he's like this. He'd never seen this kind of trauma before. And he says, Daddy, is she dead? And I was like, no, she's not dead, but, Joe, come with me. I grabbed the tube, and I said, follow me. He's like in his little abominable snowman suit, you know? He's like chasing me, like, I'm coming, Daddy, I'm coming. We got over to the edge of the mountain i did what any good dad would do i got my son i folded him in two popped him down in the middle of the tube got him over to the edge spun him around i said joseph i got to send you down the mountain by yourself and he said no day no day no day no day and i said joseph you can do this i said stay right here which was horrible left him on the edge ran back over to the little girl i'm saying i'm going to get you down the mountain I came back over and Joseph was talking to himself. He was going, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I put my hands in his fat little chubby cheeks and I said, buddy, I'm going to push you. It's okay. And he said, here's what he said. He said, Daddy, I trust you. And i Pushed my little boy right over the edge. I couldn't see him for 15 seconds. I could hear him. Ah! I grabbed that little girl, I put her in my lap, we went down together. Bless her heart, every bump we hit. I got down to the bottom, I'm waving on paramedics, they come and grab her and take her off. She had a care flight. It was the whole deal. I mean, 13 breaks down her leg. It was amazing. A spiral break. I totally forgot about Joseph. <laughs> After handing her off, I said, oh my goodness, where's Joe? We have all this on video, by the way. It's kind of cool. I turned and I look out in the middle of the runway, that little bitty guy, all by himself had wiggled out of that tube. And he's standing down at the other end, all by himself going, He came running up to me, he slammed into my leg, and he said, we did it, daddy, we did it, I trusted you. Hey friends, we're asked to trust him. He has been on the move for you and for me. He has moved throughout time for us, and he wants us in deep. Some of you right here, some of you that are online, I know what's going on. You're being asked to trust him in a whole new way because you've got some issues that are going right now. It's between you and the Lord, and he's saying, trust me. Your marriage is on the rocks. You've got all sorts of issues that are going on. He's saying, trust me. I have proved it from the beginning of time. I brought my son into the world so that you can see and know to trust me. It's scary when you're at the top of the mountain. But here's what else I know. There's people right here today that you're being asked to trust him for the very first time. Hey, friend, if the Lord is speaking to you, trust him because he is so, he's trustworthy. Let's pray. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.